I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6 now. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find them on page 48. Um, I'll also invite you to have your bulletin insert handy. Um, That has some verses that I'll be referencing today. So the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, have been in Egypt for approximately 400 years. You'll remember from our time in Genesis, they came to Egypt during a great famine. You'll remember how one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, had been sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. And while there, through a series of obviously divine acts, he rose to a position of great power. And because of the wisdom that the Lord had given him, the people of Egypt were sustained through that famine because of Joseph's wise administration. Because of the famine, Joseph's family came down from the land of Canaan to buy Egypt, and they're reunited there in Egypt with Joseph. Joseph's family members are welcomed as honored guests in Egypt by the Pharaoh of that time because of Joseph, and Pharaoh invites them to stay as his honored guests. And he offers to them to live wherever they desire to live. He offers to them the very finest of the land. It's all theirs for their taking, for their choosing. When they first arrive, the Hebrews are some 70 persons. But in the years to follow, Scripture tells us that they become very, very numerous. They increase thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands of people from these original 70 The original Pharaoh, who had welcomed Joseph's family to Egypt, dies, we're told, in chapter 1. And we're told that another Pharaoh came into power who did not know Joseph. And that Pharaoh was no longer willing for the Hebrews to live in Egypt as honored guests. And so he then enslaved them and began to oppress them. But still, the Hebrews grew in number. They grew so much in population even that the Pharaoh who was in power in chapter 2 ordered that every male child born to the Hebrews should be killed. The Pharaoh decided that he had put an end to this Hebrew problem that he had on his hands through genocide. The oppression and the attempted genocide of the Hebrew People continued through a series of pharaohs. And when we read this in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry from rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And I'd like for us just to stop there for a moment for us to consider those truths and that description of God. What does it do for your heart to know that God hears your groaning. What does it do for your heart to know that God sees you in your times of distress? God hears your cries. 
He hears our cries for help. He hears our cries for rescue. God sees you. And God knows. There's a beautiful verse in Psalm 56, 8. Speaking of God, David says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That's how intimately the Lord knows you. That's how much, that's how passionately the Lord cares for you. He cares for you so much that he's not willing even for your tears to go wasted. And of course, we know that one day the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth will put an end to every reason for our tears after Jesus turns back all of the effects of the fall and gives us our full deliverance. A full redemption, full deliverance and rescue will be ours and for all those who are redeemed by Jesus, our deliverer. The people cry out to the Lord and he hears them and he sees them and he remembers his covenant with them. Then chapter 3 appears to Moses in the burning bush. Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land to the land of Canaan. And then the Lord tells Moses that he's going to send him to Pharaoh to tell him to let the Hebrews go. If you were with us last week, you might remember that that Moses was rather reluctant in trusting the Lord in his calling. But eventually, after some reluctance, he, he, he submits to the Lord's call on his life. He returns to Egypt, and he does as the Lord directs him. He goes to the leaders of the Hebrews, and he and his brother Aaron tell the Hebrews all that the Lord has told them. And then in Exodus 4, 29 through 31, upon hearing of the Lord's promise to deliver them from their oppression, the people who hear respond with a proper response of faith. They bow their heads and they worship this God who has pledged himself to them. The people were overjoyed by this news of this impending deliverance. But as we read a little earlier, that Pharaoh wasn't exactly in a cooperative mood when Aaron and Moses went to him, asking him to let the Hebrews go. And instead of them experiencing freedom from their oppression, their oppression only grew worse. And their harsh taskmasters simply grew even more harsh. And in their disappointment, the people became disgruntled against Moses. And Moses began to become disgruntled with the Lord. That brings us to our passage this morning. Moses' first attempt to rescue the the Hebrews has been unsuccessful. And now we have a second conversation that the Lord has with Moses. 
And as he does so, you're going to see him do as he did last week in chapter 4. He's going to call upon Moses to trust him. And he's going to give him several very important reasons for why he can. This is a word that Moses and the Hebrew people desperately needed to hear. And friends, it's a word that you and I desperately need to hear as well. Let's turn our attention now to the reading of God's word in verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do for Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Please pray with me again. Lord God, we do thank you for your enduring word. We thank you for your enduring promises. We thank you for your enduring faithfulness. And we ask you, Lord, by the power of your word and your spirit working together, to grow our faith so that we and our faith would also endure. We pray this in your most precious name. Amen. Well, can you relate to the disappointment that that Moses and the Hebrew people must have been feeling? Their hopes for salvation and deliverance from their slavery had been so raised when Moses and Aaron came saying that the Lord was going to deliver them, only for those hopes to be dashed when Pharaoh refused to let them go. What do we do in moments like that? What do we do when something doesn't work out the way that we had hoped? That's the situation that we have before us here. Moses and the people of Israel had their their hopes raised only to have those hopes be crushed. Rather than have his request to Pharaoh for for the freedom of his people to be met, rather than for them to be granted freedom, instead that request is met by more oppression. And the people turned against Moses. What can we learn from Moses? 
What will Moses and his disappointment do? At the end of chapter 5, he turns to the Lord and he he inquires of him. But that inquiry actually feels a little bit more like an accusation. Look at those last couple of verses again in chapter 5. In verse 22, Moses accuses the Lord of doing evil to Israel. And he accuses the Lord also in verse 23 that he wasn't doing anything for his people at all. Saying, you haven't delivered your people at all. Take some guts to say something like that. Quite the attitude. And you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of the story in the Gospels about Jesus in the, being asleep in the boat during the storm. Do you remember that? In Mark 4.38, in the midst of this storm that had suddenly arose as these men who most of them are fishermen who have spent so much time on the water and they are in fear of their life being lost. And they wake up Jesus at the stern of the boat saying, don't you even care that we're perishing? You haven't done anything at all. Don't you even care? How's that story end with Christ and his disciples? It ends with this one who, in his own timing, will act. And he says to the water, Peace, be still. And the wind and the waters obey his voice. And the disciples don't perish. And instead, through this lesson of waiting a period of time, they learn this lesson that Jesus is the one who controls the wind and the waves and all things. And that he does most certainly care. And that he is able to keep them from perishing. Moses and the Israelites are going to learn a very similar thing. But first, the Lord determines they have to wait a while. Moses accuses God of doing nothing at all. But actually, God is preparing the situation. And he's preparing his people to receive the deliverance that he'll achieve for them. Very soon, they will see the Lord do something. This one who has just been accused of doing nothing at all will very soon do a great many mighty things. And they'll even see the waters of the Red Sea obey the will of the Lord when Moses stretches out his hands in front of it. And they'll pass through on dry ground and they will not perish. So Moses turns to the Lord seeking further direction, and God answers him. God repeats his promise of this salvation to come. And he tells Moses several things. And the most important thing I think that he says in all these verses that we look at today can be summed up in those four words. I am the Lord. That phrase is repeated on multiple occasions in our passage this morning. And in fact, there are more than a dozen times, 16 times I think, in the book of Exodus where the Lord says that very same thing. 
I am the Lord. And here in chapter 6, when Moses finds himself in serious trouble, when the people of God doubt him, and when he doubts his own ability to deliver the Hebrew people out of the hand of Pharaoh, the Lord reassures Moses with those precious words and with that precious truth, I am the Lord. He tells this to Moses four times in the beginning and middle and end of this passage that we have today. He tells him this in verse 2 and 6 and 7 and 8. I am the Lord. Throughout this passage, God will give Moses many other details about his plan for the deliverance of Israel. But in the beginning and in the middle and in the end of all that he tells them, he highlights that one single fact. I am the Lord. And this is important. It's a, it's a statement of God's identity. It's not just a theological fact, but it's a relational and it's an existential reality. God wants Moses and the Israelites to understand, and he wants you and I to understand this as well, that he is the answer to all of our problems. Every aspect of our salvation depends upon Him. Our salvation, our deliverance from that which oppresses us begins and ends with Him. Hebrews 12.2 declares that the Lord is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He grants us faith. He stirs up faith in us. And He's also the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. He grows us in spiritual maturity. We read in our service earlier this morning that passage from Ephesians 1, which tells us that God chose you for salvation, elected you for salvation before the foundation of the world. And if that's the case, if before the foundation of the world, God placed his saving hand of intention upon you, if he marked you out as one of his own, if he did that from before the foundation of the world, Why would he ever abandon you now? Why would he ever fail you now or ever? He created you in order that you and he might live forever in relationship. And regardless of whatever kind of difficulty might face Moses or the Hebrew people or you or me, we can trust that we can endure it. Because He is the Lord. So instead of seeking to escape our problems, we need to stare Him in the face and say, Okay, God, here's what I'm facing. How would you have me face it? How do you desire for me to honor you through the way in which I hold up under this challenge? How do you desire for me to honor you as I wait to see you act? as I wait to see you overcome this challenge, as I wait to see you bring deliverance here. Later, as he leads the Hebrew people, Moses will face a number of very grave difficulties. And I wonder if maybe that's why, why God let Moses fall this first time when he went to Pharaoh. 
Because what might have happened if Moses walked into Pharaoh and simply said, let my people go, and Pharaoh would have said, okay. Moses probably would have started feeling pretty good about himself. And he wouldn't have had to have learned to be so dependent upon the Lord. And he wouldn't have had to have learned to wait on God's timing. What happened to Moses can happen to us. Like Moses, wondering and even accusing God, you are doing nothing at all for me in this situation. Moses is learning that God is faithful to his promises. And if he has said he will act, he will act. And you and I need to learn that same lesson as well. We have problems in our lives that only God can solve. He didn't create, create us to be our own Savior, our own Deliverer. But instead, He created us to trust Him. And to walk when He says walk. And to wait when He says wait. And again, I think at this point in the Exodus account... That's what God's teaching his people. He's teaching his people to trust in him and to trust in him alone, to place their hopes in him. They weren't to trust in their own abilities. They weren't to trust in their own abilities to achieve their own deliverance. And neither should we. We need to trust in the Lord. We've looked at some verses these last couple of weeks that reference how the Lord says that we are precious to him. He loves you. He's proven that in so many ways and so many times. Most fully at the cross when he proved that he would rather die than to lose any of us. And why? Because he is the Lord. And he's the Lord your God, he says in verse 7. He's pledged himself to his people. He's pledged himself to you. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this passage shows Moses, and it should show us too, that the only thing that we can really count on is the one who is the Lord. I am the Lord. He's the one who's with you. He's the one who's for you. And he's the one who's promised to work for your salvation. We see this throughout this passage throughout this book of Exodus, throughout the Bible. We see it especially in verses 6 through 8 in this passage. In verses 6 through 8, God makes seven I will statements. I think last week we looked at him making ten similar statements. But here he makes seven statements where God says, this is what I will do for you. Seven times he gives his answer For the Hebrews' problems. And what they'll see is that God is the God who is faithful to his promises. He's the God who works on behalf of his people. But they have to understand and we have to understand that the Lord works in his own way and in his own time. And his ways are not our ways. And his timing isn't always our timing. But his ways and his timing are always good. 
And in fact, they're always perfect. And as people of faith, we're called to accept and to embrace both the Lord's way and the Lord's timing. That's one of the lessons, again, I think the Lord's teaching the Israelites and us too in His delaying, in His delivering of the people. Let's look at some of these I will statements briefly in our time here. He begins in verse 6 by saying, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. The Lord promises the deliverance, the freedom of his people. And in essence, that's what salvation means. Being freed from slavery. Being delivered from captivity. Being freed from oppression. What the Israelites need to learn is that when God says, I am the Lord, he's promising That I am the Lord, I am the one who will be with you and who will deliver you. And again, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to stop and worship the Lord for the fact that he has delivered us as well. He's delivered us from a bondage that was enslaving us to sin, enslaving us to ourselves, enslaving us to to the world system rather than serving the Lord. But if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you now have changed realities. You are a changed person and you have changed realities. But if you are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you still need that change. You still need that deliverance. The Lord promises His people that He'll deliver them and that He'll lead them into freedom. He promises them also, if you look here, that he will redeem them. He says that also in verse 6. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched hand. Redemption is actually a financial term. In ancient times, it was used to describe the release of a slave by the payment of a ransom. And later it became a, a part of biblical law. So if an Israelite had to sell himself into slavery in order to pay a debt, his family could redeem him by paying a ransom price in order to secure his freedom. And here the Lord promises to redeem his people, to pay the purchase price in order to secure the freedom of his people. And of course we understand from Scripture that the purchase price that the Lord has paid for you and I has been nothing short of the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. In verse 7, the Lord also demonstrates what he sees as his right of possession of the Hebrew people. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And friends, he's done that for you and I as well. We are His. He owns us. We are secure. He has given Himself to us. He has pledged Himself to us to be our God. Because He is the Lord. He makes another reference to possession in verse 8 when He promises that He'll bring them out of the land that He promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And not only will He bring them to that land, but that He'll give that to them as their possession. 
The Lord's made that promise to His people throughout Genesis and now here in Exodus. And this isn't just some empty promise, but this is that covenantal promise of the Lord tied to the very character of the one who's declared, I am the Lord. And this promise will indeed become a reality. This one who declares, I am the Lord and I will bring you out and I will free you and I will redeem you and so on. This one who is the Lord can be trusted. His word is sure. His promise to you is sure. And so, after being told all of these wonderful promises, after the Lord reintroducing Himself to Moses and to the Hebrews, how do these people then respond in hearing the Lord say that you think I'm doing nothing, but look at what I'm doing. I'm setting everything up for my perfect timing. How will you respond? How do the people respond? Look at verse 9. After the second encounter with the Lord, Moses goes back and he tells the people all of this that the Lord had told him. How do the people respond? Will they respond with a proper response of faith like they did at the end of chapter 4? No. Verse 9 of chapter 6. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit. And harsh slavery. Isn't that a remarkable response? Wouldn't you think that the people would be overjoyed at the receipt of such news. That this this God, the one who is the Lord Almighty, has promised that he will indeed deliver you. Wouldn't you think that they would be overjoyed, filled with faith, that their trust would expand. But in the face of all of these I will statements, the people respond with a statement of their own. The Lord says, I will. And what do the people of Israel say? I won't. It's as if they say, Lord, uh, Moses, that's all well and good to hear about God's mighty power. But we don't believe it. Because we haven't seen him to be that kind of God. Look at our plight. We don't believe it. We can't believe it. In spite of all these remarkable covenantal promises, the people of Israel couldn't believe them, even though they were given by the Lord Himself. The question for you and I today is this. What about us? Do you trust fully in the promises of God. Do you, do I? Friends, I pray that as we make our way through this story of the book of Exodus, I pray that our faith will be strengthened. I pray that our faith faith will be strengthened as we see that the Lord really does fulfill every promise that He makes. I pray that we'll be encouraged as we see Him do mighty acts of deliverance for His people. I pray that it will help us to remember and appreciate the mighty acts that the Lord has done for you in and through His Son, Jesus. As we make our way through the book of Exodus, I pray that your faith will be strengthened as you remember that the Lord has given Himself to you to make you His own possession. 
I pray that your faith will be strengthened as we grow in our recognition that he is with us always. I pray that your faith will be strengthened and that you will be able to trust him more fully when you remember that this one who calls you is the Lord. I pray that you'll be encouraged again by these truths that he's the one who hears your groanings and who sees you in your afflictions. I pray that you'll respond to this one who is the Lord with the proper responses of faith. I pray that you and I will trust him and that we'll we'll bow our knees before him and that we'll worship him always for he deserves that for he is the Lord, your God. Pray with me again. Lord God, even that is a remarkable statement. That not only can we say that you are the Lord, but we can say that you are the Lord, our God. For you have purchased us to be your own possession. You have delivered us from our bondage, from all that seeks to oppress us. Lord, deliver us all the more. Lord, grow our faith like we've been discussing today, recognizing our need for those disciples whom, who were with Jesus in the boat, even after they experienced what they experienced that night. Even after that, there were countless times that they demonstrated that their faith was actually quite small. And the Lord said, O ye of little faith, trust in me, Trust also in God. Help us to do that. Help us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust you more fully, more completely, more quickly. Cast out doubt. Deliver us from thoughts of accusations against you or the accusations of the evil one. Help us to stand on what is true and help us to purpose by the power of your Holy Spirit to believe that and to believe in you for you are the Lord our God. We pray this all in your great name. Amen.